Here they come! Welcome to episode 157 of Effectively Speaking, the podcast that takes a look at some of the special effects sequences of film and television, be they classic, average or duff. I'm your host Eric Moore and today I'm solo again to look at the rather troubled history of the making of the effects on The Hunt for Red October. Well sir, I was just thinking that perhaps there's another possibility we might consider. Ramius might be trying to defect. Do you mean to suggest that this man has Proceed, come... Proceed, Mr. Ryan. Well, Ramius trained most of their officer corps, which would put him in a position to select men willing to help him. And he's not Russian. He's Lithuanian by birth, raised by his paternal grandfather, a fisherman. And he has no children, no ties to leave behind. And today is the first anniversary of his wife's death. Oh, come on. You're just an analyst. What can you possibly know what goes on in this mine? I know Ramius, General. He's nearly a legend in the submarine community. He's been a maverick his entire career. I actually met him once at an embassy dinner. Have you ever met Captain Ramius, General? In 1984, Tom Clancy's novel, The Hunt for Red October, was released and became a smash hit. Six years later, Paramount released the film version. Its production was beset by the challenges of getting what's in the book onto the big screen. Director John McTiernan, from the get-go, strove for total realism, but that straight away caused a problem. If you're being realistic, then the submarines have no external lights. Neither do they have any portholes for light to bleed out of. And it takes place in the total blackness of the deep sea. So how the bloody hell are you going to see anything? John decided on a compromise. In the ocean depths, there do exist photofluorescent organisms that produce light, so that would be the justification of using sourceless light. For the building and filming of the submarines, the job was put out to tender. ILM put in a bid for it, but Paramount decided to go with Boss Films. Boss spent nearly a year creating the submarines, including realising, in the book, 650-foot-long, 30,000-tonne Red October, along with the USS Dallas and the Soviet Konovalon. Headed by veteran and master model maker Greg Jain, Boss built a Red October miniature 21 feet long, which was highly detailed by the likes of Kim Smith, Keith London and Tony Summers. They also built a four-foot version of the Red October. The Dallas model clocked in at 10 feet, and there were two of them. The Conovalon was 9 foot. They also built a 2 foot rescue craft and a 12 foot tall recreation of the Red October's conning tower. They worked from the available reference photos, along with input from serving and retired Navy submariners, or submariners. National security concerns prevented complete accuracy, though. The submarine's anti-echo tiles couldn't be shown, for example. After nearly that year was up, 
of model building and effects pre-production and what have you, Paramount pulled the plug, citing that the early test footage didn't meet with their approval. Boss refuted that, saying that they had delivered exactly what the studio specification was for. ILM were brought in during October 1989 and that's when things got tough. The film had a locked-in release date of March 1990 that couldn't be moved. To make matters worse, the promotional campaign was to start a month before with a trailer launch during halftime at the Super Bowl. ILM had less than four months to produce the 50 shots needed. When they put in their initial bid, it was for a year's work, same as Boss. ILM's effects supervisor Scott Squires, cameraman Pat Sweeney and key grip Pat Fitzsimmons knew any sort of pre-production was out as to get everything done in time they would have to produce an average of one finished effect shot every two days. For that reason as well any hope of using blue screen was nixed as it was too time consuming. Wasn't all bad news though because ILM did receive all of the models Boss had made along with the stock footage that they had done, storyboards and test footage. And an early decision by Boss made things easier for ILM, at least so they thought. The submarines would be filmed dry. They were going to hang the submarine models on wires thin enough to be virtually invisible to the camera eye and fill a shooting stage with cracker smoke which is a non-toxic mineral oil base, to create the murky look of the underwater world. But that original plan to shoot live action that way gave way to motion control photography when it became apparent that more control of the cameras and cranes was needed to capture the huge scope and scale of the subs. As Pat Sweeney said, we had multiple ships that had to fly past one another and close the camera to create the drama and tension McTinnan was after. After a few nicks and bumps between camera and model, we realised motion control was the way to go. Plus, motion control had the added advantage of allowing us to get so close to the models that they would fill the screen and give the subs tremendous scale. The changeover to motion control photography involved a major refitting of the stage that they were filming on. In three weeks, stage technician Joe Fulmer and his crew had to build 12 motion control rigs to fly the models. The main flying rig which could move one submarine model at a time was a massive masterwork of motion co control technology and what they called Stone Age grip work. A 12 foot high bank of scaffolding was anchored to the warehouse floor and a 50 foot long motion control track was laid on top and secured. The actual device to move models along the track required a multi-ton Chapman crane arm to provide 25 feet of linear movement along the track. The device for suspending submodels required not only a separate motion control mechanism allowing for pitch and roll, but the means to keep a model in balance, since the slightest wobble of a suspended model would betray the illusion of a large underwater craft. Called in as a consultant for the wire rigging design was Tad sorry about this if I get it wrong, Tad Kronowski, who had designed a unique flying rig for batteries not included. But while the batteries set up had flown round spaceship models weighing only 10 pounds, the Hunt rig had to control weighty and unwieldy conical submarine models. Since the main rig could only handle one submarine at a time, a floating scaffold on wheels was built to handle additional models. 
at 12 feet tall and 16 feet square with a 16 foot motion control track and crane arm on top the scaffold was so large it required five crew members to push the rig in place and an additional person riding on top with the crane arm the lights combined with the non-toxic cracker oil smoke filling the stage provided the illusion of murky depths in which to fly the submarines although the effect allowed the team to accomplish shots in camera the downside was the time comes time-consuming process of programming model moves in perfect synchronization with the smoke and lights. The smoke effect alone required 40 minutes before two drums of cracker oil smoke could sufficiently cloud up the stage. A typical day at the stage would begin with morning setup and rigging for the models and the lighting scheme and motion control programming were completed in the afternoon. Throughout the day fax or phone communications with the director would finalize specific shots. By 8pm the crew were able to smoke the stage, start the camera and sit back and watch the action. Shooting at a frame per second, the motion control camera took an average of 15 minutes to half an hour to record the program move, bringing to an end the long workday. An unexpected delay came in the form of a 7.1 magnitude earthquake that shook the Bay Area on October the 17th. A hanging Dallas sub submarine test model came off its wires are neatly cracked along the seams from nose to tail and the 12 foot red October hit the ground and lost its styrene tail and conning tower. Despite several days lost due to stage safety inspections there were no injuries, the model damage was easily repairable and building inspectors allowed the production to proceed. When the model shots were completed computer graphics and the optical department added the final level of detailing. The computer graphics department scanned in plates and added undersea part, part, particle matter created from particle generating software while opticals matted blue screen shots of torpedo miniatures in front of computer generated wakes. By the end of ILM's work the 50 shot schedule had grown to 72 completed shots. The film opened on time and went on to be a box office smash. Um, if you didn't know um, the behind-the-scenes troubles of the uh, model photography and just what a you know what a uh, tight schedule they were under you wouldn't know I mean you watch it now it holds up quite well I think the model work certainly does um, the um, yeah the some of the torpedo shots um, don't look too good these days um, but uh, no the model work is 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 perfectly fine um, so out of 10 um i'll give him a seven all right that's a short one today always is a short one when i'm by myself but uh next episode i've got mark back with me so uh see you then for a bit of a longer one so see you next time bye bye